0: I'm Benita Lee.
1: And I'm Stacey Johnson. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 8th,
0: 2022. Coming up, we hear how drones are helping to study the Marshall Fire.
2: We see a house that survived right here. All the other homes around it did not survive. Why did that house survive? We learn about green walls.
3: We're improving that thermal performance of the structure by at least 30%.
0: And what about humans who volunteer to get COVID?
4: One key finding was a short incubation period of only 42 hours, which is much less than the current estimate of five to six days.
0: We begin with a look at some recent research findings regarding long COVID and tiny powerhouses within our cells called mitochondria. Long COVID is the term for someone who doesn't recover from a COVID infection quickly but instead has months of feeling poorly. Mitochondria are like tiny batteries within our cells that our entire body gets energy from for moving, eating, thinking, and it seems in some people they get damaged by COVID. For more, here's a news report from Denver's National Jewish Health.
5: Joanna Zeiger is an Olympic triathlete and Ironman champion. I don't have your ball. But these days, Joanna has trouble just taking her dog for a walk or climbing a flight of stairs. She also struggles with brain fog and memory issues, symptoms that never went away after contracting COVID-19 five months ago. It's been a very difficult transition, both you know, work-wise and exercise-wise, and for my mental health just not not having all of that. Joanna turned to National Jewish Health for help, where doctors and researchers have established the Center for Post-COVID Care and Recovery to find the common link between those who experience long-term effects of the
1: virus. We see young and old. We see folks who had um, mild acute COVID or severe acute COVID, and um, there was no Clear predisposing comorbidity. Heart and
5: lung tests were usually normal in these patients, so researchers looked deeper to the cellular level using a unique exercise test that produces hundreds of data points at once.
1: Putting it together and really looking at what it is that's causing that person to stop exercising is kind of where the money is.
0: You were breathing what we would essentially like too much, like more than your body needs, which is a pattern that we've seen in certain people with
2: COVID.
5: Researchers determined that in certain people the virus actually hinders cells from generating energy and while this test revealed that dysfunction in muscle tissue they believe this same cell process could be linked to post-covid symptoms in the neurological and pulmonary systems as well it's a discovery that helps experts better understand the problem so they can begin to help those like joanna get back to their lives there are a lot of people out there struggling with long COVID symptoms, and a lot of them are very serious and life-altering. At National Jewish Health, this is Barb Consiglio reporting.
0: CU Boulder biologist and How on Earth volunteer, Beth Bennett has some thoughts about how genetic differences and underlying conditions can affect how each person experiences a COVID infection. We'll hear more from Beth later on in the show. Up next, we'll hear about how a beautiful green wall can also save on heating bills. Stay tuned.
1: Even if you'd never heard of a green wall, you've probably seen one. These vertical gardens are popular in ultra-modern design. They're hung on indoor and outdoor walls like joyous plant-filled collages. But researchers in England believe that green walls on older conventional buildings could be a key to reaching climate change goals. For How on Earth, my co-host Benita Lee reports.
0: Green walls offer a soothing sense of nature for people surrounded by sterile, man-made environments. Past studies show that green walls with denser foliage can help insulate buildings by buffering against cold, strong winds. During winter in the United Kingdom, this could mean energy savings of up to 37%. And in warmer climates, green walls offer shading that can potentially reduce air conditioning needs by 26%. But they also might save energy for heating older buildings. That's a new idea, says architect, Dr. Matthew Fox, a researcher at England's University of Plymouth. He and other scientists recently published their findings in the journal Building and Environment.
3: Most people in this field tend to look at the benefits of adding a green wall in terms of shading and cooling, but not in terms of keeping the inside space warm.
0: Environmental building scientists think about two factors when analyzing energy savings embodied energy and operational energy. Embodied energy is the energy used to gather a building's raw materials, complete its construction, and eventually demolish it. Operational energy is the energy used to run the building, like gas, electricity, and water. Most structures in England were built before 1964. These older buildings emit 17% of greenhouse gases in the United Kingdom. Good news is they're already built, so their embodied energy has mostly been spent. Bad news is they're poorly insulated and use more operational energy to keep indoor temperatures comfortable year-round.
3: The wall that we had the green wall fitted to in this situation dated back to, I think it was the 1970s. These buildings are, are in need of the greatest upgrade because they don't have any insulation at all. If we're to hit our carbon reduction targets, which the UK have set, then we don't only need to be looking at new buildings. We need to be looking at retrofitting our existing buildings. And that's something that we're not necessarily as a a country looking at in in enough detail, as far as I'm concerned, but with the green wall research, then maybe we can offer an alternative solution. And one that doesn't necessarily just consider synthetic materials that have that high embodied energy.
0: The UK's climate change goal is net zero carbon emissions by 2050. With so many older, uninsulated buildings, quick, easy solutions are needed now, says another author of the study, Dr. Steve Goodhue.
4: Now
3: we have a climate crisis now. We hope we won't have a climate crisis in 60 years' time. The hope is that technologies will come on stream and we will be using much more renewable energy to produce our energy maybe in 20, 30 years' time. The building's got another 30 years beyond that even to keep going.
0: For the study, the guinea pig was a two-story campus office building. Like most older buildings, it had cavity walls without insulation. Cavity walls are like air-filled brick sandwiches. There's an outer brick wall, then empty space, then the inner wall of the building. It's designed to keep damaging water out. Nowadays, insulation is added between the walls, but adding insulation means more embodied energy. So instead, researchers covered a section of outdoor wall with a green wall. Another section of the wall was left uncovered. They then monitored the indoor room temperatures directly behind the two different sections. No one expected a huge difference between the two, but Dr. Fox says,
3: We were really excited by the results, and the results coming back to us from the data suggested that by physically putting an external envelope of green facade, we were improving that thermal performance of the structure by at least 30%.
0: Energy savings with traditional insulation are also around 30%. But Fox says placing a green wall on a building's facade to save thermal energy is still in the lead because it saves embodied energy also.
3: So the embodied energy of fitting an external facade of plant material with soils and and the, the felt pockets, the embodied energy that goes into that is minimal. But when you compare that with external insulation made out of polystyrene, it starts to become really attractive as a solution to not only give you the operational energy improvement, so you're not only improving the thermal performance, but you're also saving all of that energy that would go into other insulating materials. A
0: green wall is designed to play up its other advantages as well. Two other study authors, Drs. Paul Lunt, and Thomas Murphy specialize in nature-based systems. Dr. Lunt says they chose plants with
3: specific traits for their green wall. We try and use native plants as much as possible because they're obviously of more benefit to the local wildlife. Where we're looking for uh, drought tolerance, then quite often they'll be covered in hairs or they'll be silvery in color to reflect the light, the kind of reflective properties, the size of the leaves, and whether they're um, slowing air movement around the building is quite important.
0: And yes, it is lovely. But Lunt says the green wall's charm is more about what it attracts.
3: And then, of course, in the summer months, they're um, covered in flowers, so they're attractive to nectar and pollen-feeding uh, invertebrates, bees, wasps, butterflies, etc.
0: The team says the green wall also attracts passers-by. Photos of their work can be seen on our website. For how on earth... I'm Benita Lee. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Stay tuned for Beth Bennett explaining a study about people who volunteered to get COVID. But first, what does it take for communities to be resilient in the face of natural disasters? A scientific drone just might supply some answers, including about Boulder County's recent Marshall Fire, which destroyed over 1,000 homes. As the scars of the Marshall Fire continue to lay claim to many parts of superior, Louisville, and rural Boulder County, Local scientists and researchers from around the country have been collecting field data to better understand the disaster and its impacts. Last month, my co-host, Stacey Johnson, went on-site to talk with scientists doing data collection. Here's more.
1: It's a plane, it's a bird, it's Superman. Well, not exactly. That buzzing sound is a scientific drone launching 60 meters into the air. The drone is about two feet wide. It looks like a big black flying crab. More important than what you can see about the drone is what the drone itself is seeing. The drone has several cameras. CU Boulder engineering professor Brad Wham says they're using the drone to get detailed images of burned-out buildings and terrain from the Marshall Fire.
3: So we'll take. Photos of the ground in an overlapping pattern to be able to build a mosaic of the area with high quality images.
1: WAM says those photos will help scientists create detailed 3D models of what burned and what did not, along with the height of the terrain within the area. WAM is one of a dozen scientists and students who have gathered data as part of the National Science Foundation Consortium known as GEAR. GEAR is a catchy name that stands for Geotechnical Extreme Events Reconnaissance. The GEAR team in recent weeks has been working steadily to capture perishable data from the fire area before massive cleanup of debris begins. Last month, the team launched that buzzing drone you are hearing in the Spanish Hills neighborhood to better understand how the area's topography may have influenced the pattern of the fire and damage to structures. The drone is scanning a handful of formerly stately homes that were built on a ridge with panorama views of the Boulder Flatirons. Many of the former homes are now reduced to rubble. It's a scene similar to the aftermath of a war or bomb. What is possibly comforting to the area is a recent layer of snow, as if mother nature is trying to soften the harm. It's a somber scene, but to the scientists, it's a giant laboratory. CU's Brad Wham says the hills of Spanish Hills are a part of the targeted data.
3: This area here, is of interest to us because there's a lot of changes in elevation. One of the challenges after forest fires is you lose the vegetation which is holding the soil together. We want to try to understand whether or not there are slopes that could be a potential problem in the future and that's some of the perishable data we're after. Uh, What is the state of things at this time and as the rains come in the spring, as the snow melts, do we see movements and things that may threaten new rebuilds or existing homes that are still in place?
1: Another member of the GEAR team is Erica Fisher, an engineering professor at Oregon State University. Fisher wonders why that house burned while others
2: did not. We want to understand how characteristics of housing influence survivability. Distance between the house, roofing material. Was there a burnt fence or tree touching the house? Did the house next door burn down? So, you know, we, we see a house that survived right here. All the other homes around it did not survive. Why did that house survive? We, we want to understand that. We have been surveying homes, not just in this neighborhood, this is one of the last neighborhoods we're surveying homes in, Um, but we've surveyed homes in in downtown Old Superior.
1: As Fisher is talking, it's not the sound of buzzing bees advancing upon the scientists, it's that big black drone that looks like a crab coming closer as it takes
2: images of the area. We've surveyed in the Sagamore area, we've surveyed around the Mulberry area, um, looking at different you know areas you know areas where you have bigger lots bigger homes versus areas where you have smaller lots smaller homes areas where homes are really close together areas where homes are further apart and we were flying drones to collect the rest of the data
1: Each photo will have its own geographical information tag, so when Fisher returns to Oregon, she won't lose track of each image location. The team will also talk with local fire department officials to hear why the firefighters believe one home was saved while another burned down. These researchers are even studying what happens to water distribution pipes during a wildfire. Water pipes might seem the least of the worries after a wildfire, but engineer professor Erica Fishers from Oregon. Oregon is a state that delivers drinking water to homes through underground plastic pipes. Scientists on the West Coast have learned that during a wildfire, the ground can get so hot it damages plastic water pipes. Even if the pipes still work, the heat can lead plastic pipes to start leaching benzene and other toxic chemicals into drinking water. Water treatment plants in Colorado often send water to people's homes using other materials than plastic pipes. Fisher wonders whether the kinds of pipes used in Colorado might reduce the toxic chemicals that leach into drinking water after a fire. Here's more from Erica Fisher.
2: We use a lot of plastic pipes on the West Coast and those are incredibly flexible ductile in an earthquake. They are incredibly durable, and they are inexpensive. There's a lot of reasons to use them, but a project that I have, and Brad Wham is my collaborator on that project, is to understand how these plastic pipes potentially thermally degrade during a wildfire. They heat up, they release contaminants into the water distribution system, and how we can detect those contaminants, how we can predict where that might happen, so communities can be prepared. Here in Colorado, in the regions that were impacted, they don't use plastic pipes going from your water main to your house or the main water distribution line to the water meter. They might use them in the house itself, but not underground. or curious, you know, if you don't find any contaminants here, you know, is that a potential way to kind of mitigate that impact?
1: Erica Fisher says as more communities face wildfire, like the Marshall Fire, she sees a greater role for this special team of gear engineers to study the impacts and to share their expertise.
2: There are teams that deploy after after major wildfires, Usually they're through either the U.S. Forest Service or the National Institute of Standards and Technology has a wild and urban interface group. Where the shift is happening is we're seeing a lot of these wildfires are impacting our communities across the West. So as civil engineers, we've been working for a long time, decades, on what does it mean for a community to be resilient in the face of natural hazards. Earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, tsunamis. Um, we've, we've tackled all these hazards and so.
1: Oregon State engineering professor Erica Fisher is getting hard to hear at this moment because snow plows and other vehicles are rumbling past the burned out homes in Boulder, Spanish Hills. What Fisher is saying is that civil and construction engineers are accustomed to helping communities recover from earthquakes and floods. But the need for a town to recover from a wildfire, unfortunately, is getting more common these rumbling cars you hear are a reminder that the Spanish Hills neighborhood is not a scatter of houses up in the mountains. It's like most of the other houses that burned down in the Marshall Fire. It's homes that were part of towns and cities. Fisher is saying these areas will need the same kind of help recovering that towns struck by floods and earthquakes need. Now here's more from Oregon civil
2: engineer Erica Fisher. Because we have such a situational awareness of what it takes for a community to recover in these disasters. We've we've studied these communities from earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and now we're taking the framework that we've really honed in on and, and refined really well and we're, we're looking at wildfires now. Traditionally these towns have not been investigated by civil engineers now we're trying to partner with our forest college's partners and colleagues and trying to bring that knowledge that we have from decades of studying these other hazards into into this field.
1: You've been listening to Oregon civil engineer Erica Fisher who is part of GEAR. GEAR is a catchy name for geotechnical extreme events reconnaissance. A GEAR team was in Boulder County last month gathering data with their buzzy drones about the Marshall Fire. The GEAR team expects to release its initial findings within a month to supply needed information to the communities impacted by the fire and for other research that will build upon the knowledge gained from the fire's impacts. For How on Earth, I'm Stacy Johnson.
0: In today's show, so far we've shared clues from Denver's National Jewish Hospital about how weak mitochondria inside a person's cells might be involved in long COVID. Benita has shared how beautiful green walls of living
1: plants might make it easier to heat and cool buildings, even older buildings.
0: Stacy's taken us out into the field where scientific drones have been gathering data about the Marshall Fire.
1: Now we'll return to the topic of COVID, where it is a wild, wild world.
3: Oh, baby, baby, it's a wild
1: world. Up next, CU Boulder biologist and How on Earth volunteer Beth Bennett shares new findings about people who volunteered to get COVID.
4: Oh, baby, baby. It's hard to study a new disease like COVID because it can't be fully simulated in animal models. So-called human challenge trials, in which volunteers are deliberately exposed to a disease to study its effects, have been common in the past. Scientists have used these trials for decades to learn more about diseases such as malaria, flu, typhoid, and cholera to develop treatments and vaccines against them. In more recent years, these have fallen out of favor due to ethical concerns. A group of graduate students in Britain started pushing for a human challenge for COVID-19 in 2020 to advance research into the disease. The first such study launched last February at Imperial College London was completed recently and found to be safe in healthy young adults. The trial exposed 36 healthy, unvaccinated male and female volunteers aged 18 to 29 years the original SARS-CoV-2 strain of the virus, and then monitored them in a quarantine setting for two weeks. For their heroism and time, they were paid about $6,500. I'm surprised they didn't get more college-age volunteers. Following the conclusion of the quarantine, they're being followed for the 12 months to determine any further adverse effects, the next 12 months, that is. Participants were inoculated with nose drops containing a low dose of the original SARS-CoV-2 virus, then monitored in a controlled setting for two weeks. The researchers said they used the lowest dose necessary to infect people, although it was believed to be comparable to that producing real-world infections. A number of important clinical observations resulted from the study. First, 18 of the 36 experienced infections including 16 who experienced symptoms, which were mild to moderate. Common symptoms included stuffy or runny nose, sneezing, musculoskeletal pain, headache, fever, and fatigue. 13 had loss of taste or smell, which resolved after three months in all but three of the participants. None developed lung symptoms or suffered adverse effects. One key finding was a short incubation period of only 42 hours, which is much less than the current estimate of five to six days. The infection first appeared in the throat. Infectious virus peaked about five days into infection, which is also when the most significant symptoms were usually noticed. But high levels of viable virus were seen up to nine days after exposure and as late as 12 days for some of the participants. At peak infection, the virus was significantly more abundant in the nose than the throat. Most people had live virus in their nose for an average of six and a half days. Researchers said the peak viral levels they saw in the nose hint at a higher risk of shedding from the nose, underscoring the importance of masks that cover both the mouth and the nose. They also said the infection duration they found supports the isolation periods of most guidelines. The researchers also found that rapid lateral flow tests, these are the so-called rapid antigen tests we've been using lately, were a reliable indicator of whether infectious virus was present and therefore the person was likely to be able to transmit the virus. The rapid tests correlated well with PCR results, including in asymptomatic people. However, the antigen tests were less able to flag lower levels of virus at the start and end of infection. In following research steps, the team will explore why 16 of the 34 participants became infected, but the others did not. Some had detectable virus in their nose, but did not go on to test positive twice on PCR tests, which was the threshold the team used for confirmed infection. Work is also underway on a challenge study using the Delta variant. This research was published in a preprint last week by the journal Nature. Nature
1: thanks to how on nurse beth bennett for that report
0: that's all for this edition of how on earth our executive producer is susan moran
1: this week's show was produced by us with additional contributions from shelly schlender
0: our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Ray LaMontagne, Hope 90 BPM, and Cat Stevens.
1: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org for past episodes. And you can subscribe to our podcast through
0: iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Benita Lee. And I'm Stacy Johnson.